Well, Steve whispered to me that there was no problem about time and I wasn't to worry about it. So that's great and I hope you have your pyjamas with you. Because once I get started and Alan is a bit like tag wrestling today, he's going to take over from me once we get started. We might not get finished too early. So anyway, lovely to be here back in Fitzroy. I was uh, whispering to our little boy, Seatley, and those of you on Facebook will know him as Small Boy. And um, whispering to him, I said, Mommy and Daddy got married here a long time ago. And he said, did you kiss Mommy? <laughs> Lovely to be back in Fitzroy. I'd also forgotten about the long line for the announcements. And uh, that was quite nice to see that again. And a small boy, Seatley, nudges me just before Janet Morris, who was last to come up. And he said, she was very patient, wasn't she, Mama? <laughs> We feel surrounded by kindness, and it's lovely to see uh, familiar faces, old friends, very special. So we are, are very thankful to have the opportunity to speak about South Africa, which is, as you know, so much in the news um, today. It's a bit of a tricky country to live in, South Africa, and um, it's a very, still a very divided uh, country. Um, a country with a lot of potential. Um, we love living there because all our purpose is there, our work with children. Um, it's still bearing the scars of apartheid, not only in um, the black community, also in the white community as well. Fascinating country, but quite difficult uh, in some ways uh, to live in with the underlying tensions between the different communities, not only between black and white, but between black and Indian and I'm sure Brent can tell you about um, the colour community as well. So a lot going on, but tremendous that the country is held together so well. And certainly we love living there. For those of us who have no idea who these wacky people are uh, with this weird ragbag of a family who have come, we uh, used to live here, used to live in Belfast, got married in this church 14 years ago in July, Alan, July the 6th. And... Uh, <laughs> Not that he would forget. Um, I used to teach in one of the best schools, in the best school in Belfast, and uh, Alan worked for some small electricity company, I can't remember its name. And um, we have uh, been living in South Africa for five years, and it's our home now. So really, for the first time, as we come back to Northern Ireland, we don't really feel that it's home because our life and our work is in South Africa. We are permanent residents there after a long bureaucratic struggle, which my husband manfully conducted and won with home affairs in South Africa. We are permanent residents, and I think in about four years' time, we'll be able to apply for citizenship which we will do. Of course, South Africans are really amazed because they all want to leave. White South Africans want to, to leave, a lot of them. So we have kind of gone the other way and gone against the stream. We were called to South Africa um, five years ago. God very clearly showed us that we were called to work with children and to, um, uh, in particular, to pursue long-term parenting. And our heart is for the fatherless which our reading in Deuteronomy was about the orphaned and the abandoned. Living and working with children in South Africa and adopting children and doing various things, which I'll talk about, has turned me inside out. 
and maybe that's why my hair has gone this color. But I think when, when you read statistics about HIV AIDS, and you read that about a thousand people die in South Africa every day, we can't really connect with that. You know, you do think, oh, that's dreadful. But for us, when we have come to adopt children who have been orphaned by HIV AIDS, and when most of our, no, all of our Zulu friends have lost family members through HIV AIDS, then that becomes a reality. And when, as we see visiting in the children's wards, when we see children with very um, thin arms, gaunt, dull expressions, who are obviously in the last stages of AIDS, then that cannot be unseen. And I, well, I think we count it a real privilege to have seen that. But I find that last, that last chorus was very fitting. It's very hard for us to sing it, just because our hearts break with the stories of these children. And I'm going to tell you some of those stories today. And the stories that I will tell you about children who have been orphaned by AIDS and the children who are um, HIV positive, those stories are not four or five children that we know, but they are widespread across KwaZulu-Natal because of the high um, percentage of uh, AIDS there. When we went to South Africa, we went, told people that God had called us to go and work with children. And I am a bit of a doubter at times, and I really thought, gosh, you know, what if we come back in a year's time? And we have to tell people, well, we, we, haven't, you know, we haven't kind of got in touch with any children, and we haven't contacted any children. And God very faithfully opened up doors. Now, Alan can tell you that I kind of, uh, when I'm driving, I tend to end up somewhere I don't really want to go because I'm daydreaming or just because I'm you know, thinking about something else. God very, very clearly showed us and opened doors. And uh, children's work, first of all, in the hospital opened up. And we eventually established a ministry called Zanini Bantwana, which is Zulu for Come Children. And Come Children comes from Psalm 34, where it says, Come children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Very soon after we arrived in, um, in Peter Maritzburg in Kuzulinatal, we were working, doing some work for African Enterprise. And somebody happened to say to me that there were children in hospital who were abandoned. They weren't sick. There was nothing really physically wrong with them, but they'd maybe just been left somewhere. And um, they, they had nowhere to go, so they were put in hospital. I was quite fascinated by this. So I went to see. I did see some children who were abandoned in hospital, as indeed our latest addition to the family who... God bless them, some person is taken care of in crash very ably at the minute in Zuzo. And Zuzo was abandoned in, in hospital. More of him later. When I went into hospital, I discovered that the children, the, the medical care was adequate. It was fine. Hospital conditions also good. Um, the hospital I was visiting in, our local hospital, uh, was... Uh, built as a whites-only hospital during apartheid because, of course, you couldn't have races mixing in hospital. That just wouldn't do. Built as a whites-only hospital, it's now a hospital for blacks only, really because it's a government hospital and they cater for 
poor people who can't afford medical aid. So it's now about 97% Zulu. So the children had adequate good conditions, but they had nothing to do. No toys, no games, no crayons, no nothing. Oh, except for a very old back copy of Homes and Gardens in English, (laughs) which I thought wasn't really what would turn you on if you were a Zulu eight-year-old in hospital. Um, Many of these children didn't have uh, visitors. They didn't have regular visitors, so they had no stimulation. So in the afternoon when I would go in to visit them, they'd simply be lying on their beds because they were bored. So somebody, Norma Best, had given me some money before we left home, so I started to buy toys and games and go in and visit these kids. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. And they did too because they knew that somebody was coming who had toys and games and crayons and things for them to do. But also, more importantly, somebody was coming consistently to show them that they were valued and that they were loved. And the difference in these children was quite amazing. They would jump up when they saw me coming and they would be stimulated and we would do um, courses and games and all sorts of things. Then a Zulu friend of ours, Sihle, who now works full-time for Zanini Bantwana, he had himself been in hospital as a child. He was burned. And he said, man, I would love to go in and tell those children Bible stories. So Sikhle and I used to go in together and we would do the play thing. And then Sikhle, who is the best storyteller I've ever come across and one of the most godly people I have ever met, he came and he would tell the story. And the children loved it. So this added a whole new dimension. And Zulus are... Um, one of the best si- singing people on earth. Their singing is just tremendous. Sikhle uh, would sing and, and get the kids up and, and we'd bring in little percussion things and drums. And so all this started. Then African Enterprise asked us if, if we would become um, a ministry of theirs, which we did. We're now an associate ministry of African Enterprise. And the other thing that I discovered after some time was I realized that some of the same children were still in hospital. There are a lot of very bad burns uh, because of cooking methods there and um, because of accidents with petrol and paraffin and all sorts of things. Some of the children are in long term. So I asked, um, one day I gave a girl to Lily, a little girl of six, I gave her a piece of paper and expected her to draw a house or something. And she started writing down numbers and trying to add them up. So I thought, when do the teachers come? I haven't seen any of the teachers. It's funny that I haven't really coincided in any of of the days that they come in. So uh, I went to the staff and I said, "Uh, when do the teachers come? I'd like to meet them. And she said, teachers, for these children, there are no teachers. These children in the government hospitals are the forgotten children. They are poor they are disadvantaged already. 90% of them are HIV positive, And they have no education at all when they're in hospital. The longest stay pupil that I believe... Oh dear, I've just, I've just spilled some water over, but never mind. Um, the longest stay patient that we have come across was a girl of about eight. Her name is Menenkle. She came from a rural area. She was badly burned. She was in hospital, mostly on her own. 
her mother came sometimes, but then I think got, just got bored and didn't come to see her again. And she was in hospital for 18 months. No education, apart from Zanini Vantuala, we added this teaching element to what we do. Um, I went up at the early stages when I discovered that there were no teachers, went and asked, could I teach the kids, and started to do some teaching, which was great. And Henry, our oldest boy, who's now 12, some of you remember him from our last visit, Henry was one of the first children that I taught Henry was in hospital for over a year, uh, started off with perforated appendix, um, and then lots of complications, and Henry was a very sick little boy. Uh, I thought at one stage Henry was going to, to die, and Henry, at the end of his hospital, um, at the end of his stay in hospital, then his mother asked, could he come and live with us? He'd started to learn some English. And she said, can I come and live with you and Alan so that he can go to an English school? If you go to a Zulu school, most Zulu schools are not going to give you a good education. You really need an education in English to get good job opportunities. And during apartheid, um, education for non-whites was really smashed. That whole education system was smashed by the apartheid government to keep the other sections of the community down so that they wouldn't rival the whites in the job market. So anyway, Henry came to us after that uh, year in hospital. Henry's father really left the family during that year in, in hospital. So Alan is really his dad. Um, he does have a, another mum, and he calls both of us mum. He goes back to his family in a very rural area about once a term now. Uh, there are about 10 of them living in a, a round hut. It seems to be a reasonably functional family. Um, his mother is a domestic worker and seems to be quite caring for Henry. We've had his brother to stay and so on. So that's how we met Henry. And Zanini Vantuala, now we work in all three of the government hospitals in Peter Maritzburg. We are openly a Christian organization. There is no other Christian organization visiting in the children's wards. And if we didn't do it, nobody, nobody is doing it. Um, it has been great. Um, we love it. Uh, we feel it's a, a, a really giving the children um, hope and we don't give things to the children. Very rarely do we give things to the children. We have to take toys into the hospital and bring them back out again because they will be stolen. And what we give is time. We now have five people who work for Sinini Bantuana. Two are full-time, three part-time, and they visit in the hospital six days a week. So there's always somebody going in and out of the hospitals. Um, I think at the breakfast on the 27th, we'll be able to speak maybe at, in greater depth about some of these things, and you'll be able to ask questions. Um, I, there's a lot I could say and a lot of stories that we could tell you. But I will just tell you about two, about two children that are in hospital at the minute. A little boy, well, a boy of about 10 called Bungin Klankla, who looks terrible. He's got, I think, 60% burns in his body, and he has been hit by lightning. His mother was crying the last time he was in hospital because his mother wasn't there. Our workers are all Zulus. They are a great team, really godly people. 
and we meet uh, every week for a prayer meeting. Um, I, we hold them in tremendously high regard. Uh, couldn't say, speak more highly about them, but they are brilliant and have a real heart for the children, which is quite surprising because in Zulu society, children are not really um, rated as being important at all. And another little boy who was uh, very badly burned by petrol, he went and uh, some other boys in his village were <coughs> abusing children, small children, and he went and told the elders of that village. And the boys that he told on then poured petrol over him and set him alight. So these are the sort of children that we are working with. It is a privilege to work with them. And of course, our Zulu workers then are able not only to... Um, play with them, but also to listen to those children and to counsel them in, um, in a godly way. Zanini Bantwana was set up. Henry came to, to live with us, and we started to think about adoption. There's a huge problem with um, orphans in Kuzula Natal. And we had been in touch with a children's home in Port Shepstone, which is about two hours' drive away from us. And there was a little boy there who was a year and a half, and that was Sikhne, who's now come to live with us. So we are very interested in, in adopting him. And we go down there, and they say, this is a Christian-run home. And they say, we've just been praying, and we know this is a weird idea, but we thought we'd run it by you. There's a little girl with whom Sikhne has grown up. They are not biologically related, and none of our children are related to, to each other. Um, they're not related, but he's grown up with her. Would you consider adopting her too? And that kind of struck a chord with us because we had been saying, I'd been saying in the car, oh, this is great, a little boy, but maybe we could adopt a little girl later on. So God had provided two children. It was quite a schlep taking two children at once, I must say. So don't think that when you listen to me that it's all plain sailing in the Gaston household. And there is never a crossword between any of us. We are just like the rest of you. So, but God had provided wonderfully. So Sipo and Sikhle, it has been very good for them to have the security of each other. A friend of mine um, in... Uh, uh, Peter Maritzburg, before we adopted, we were just about to adopt, and he had adopted a little coloured boy. And he said to me, You'll love it, adoption rocks. And that we feel is kind of always ringing in our ears adoption rocks. Adoption gives children permanence, it gives them a loving home, and it gives them hope. And we have a real burden now to encourage the church to adopt. We have a clear mandate to look after the fatherless again and again. This is repeated in the Old Testament. We are adopted like as God's children. So we have a real heart to encourage Christians to adopt and not to leave it um, to the state's responsibility. And I'll talk more about that later. What I didn't realize about adoption, uh, adopting these children from a children's home. Now, this children's home was the best children's home I've seen. There are four children to one house mother. That's a very small ratio. But a children's home is not a family. God sets the lonely in families. He doesn't set them in children's homes. And what we have seen in Sipo and Sikhle, particularly in the wee girl, 
Sibyl's now six, is an amazing transformation. When Sibyl came out of the children's home, she was really quite a strange little girl. And at one stage I thought, I'm not sure I can cope with Sipo. And Sipo recently had to do a little ballet demonstration thing, and she had to do it in a school on a huge big stage and lights and everything. And I thought, my goodness, that's quite scary. What's Sipo going to make of this? Sipo took it all in her stride. And it was actually quite moving. I sat and cried throughout because this was the weird little girl who came out of the children's home. And if she'd stayed there, she would have continued to be weird um, for various reasons. So I didn't realize that before, but the impact of being in a normal family, well, normal family, and with the ordinary comings and goings, our little boy, Seekley, was abandoned as a baby. He was abandoned at five months by his mum, who was dying of HIV-AIDS. When he came to us, that was the fourth place he had lived. Even as a small boy, um, he was able to articulate. You know, if we looked at a book and there was a uh, picture of a sad person, he was able to say, he would say, they're sad because they don't have a mummy and a daddy. So even though he was in a good children's home with an auntie who was there for most of the time, he realized that that wasn't quite where it was at. Um, Sipo is an orphan. Her, her, we know nothing about her father. Her mum died um, when she was, Sipo was a month old. Sipo was actually 14 weeks premature. Her mother died from AIDS and indicated that there was no family to look after Sipo. And uh, it was up to the state to, um, to get somewhere for her. Um, so Stories of the children are very sad. But we have seen in them a a real transformation and a real blossoming. And that's why adoption rocks. The third thing that we do is we have um, established a place of safety in our family. A place of safety offers short-term accommodation to children at a crisis point in their lives. And we have had five children already in that. Uh, The first two, uh, a little girl of four, Andiswa, and a little boy of three, Sandile, came to us. They were taken away from a neglectful and abusive foster mother. Um, Unfortunately, because there's a grant for fostering, a lot of people do it for the money, or some people do it for the money. And this was certainly one case. This woman had obviously not fed the children on a regular basis. So when reading that or singing that chorus, Bread for the Children, Sandile used to come in and he'd just have his meal and he would say, he was uh, brought up, he was a Zulu child, but brought up by um, a coloured foster mother. And he would say, give me bread, ma, give me bread. And I thought, this is the first time I've ever come across a child who hasn't had food regularly. Um, in Zuzo, when he came to us, in Zuzo, um, as I said, had been abandoned in hospital, and he was in with he was taken in with extreme malnourishment. He was starving to death, basically, and TB. And when when we used to cook, start to cook at tea time, he would cling to you, and he would cry and he would whinge and everything. He he was starving to death. These things should not happen to children. 
and we are very happy to be in a position to do, in a small way, something about it. So, um, place of safety then, Sandile and Andiswa were taken away from the foster mother and brought to us, and they stayed with us for about five months during the great chickenpox, Gaston chickenpox epidemic, when one by one, we had five children there, and one by one, they all went down with chickenpox. Um, <clears throat> Well, the next children we had in Zuzo was brought to us in a place of safety and also twins. The twins were 22 months old. Um, the twins uh, were with us because their mother had TB and the idea was that she would have treatment for TB and then they would go back to her. We discovered when they came to us that they had TB. So um, we put them on medication for that, got them sorted uh, Nzuzo was finishing off his TB medication and the, the twins uh, were not malnourished but by 22 months they could only say two words in Zulu they couldn't walk properly very inconfident about uh, walking um, and eventually their mother died uh, sadly but their family regrouped and then they went back to stay with their granny and in society now, in Zulu society, um, it is the grannies that are bearing a, a big brunt of looking after children because that um, generation of the mothers and fathers are being wiped out um, with AIDS, by AIDS. So Nzuzo, Nzuzo is quite a character. I hope you meet him afterwards. And I got a phone call. We got a phone call one night to say, will you take another long-term child? It's a phone call you kind of don't know how to deal with, you know, and because um, you're not used to getting that sort of phone call. But uh, it's a friend of mine, Pam. Now, Pam's a wonderful woman, and she normally has about 15 children in her home. And um, she said this child had been in hospital. He'd been in hospital for four months. He was abandoned at hospital. His mother died of TB. He was brought into hospital, and no visitors there, no family visitors he then had come to her, to her place of safety, and then she passed him on to a woman who wanted to adopt, another Christian woman, wanted to adopt him. She was a single woman. She found she couldn't adopt him and was heartbroken by this. And Pam said, this child needs permanence. Will you take him? So Alan and I talked about it and prayed about it. And Yes, I phoned her back, I think the next day, phoned her back and said, yes, we will. We will adopt him. And um, so, Nzuzo, we first met him then when he is brought to court. He was placed with us, first of all, as a place of safety. And so he came to court with the woman who was looking after him and also the social worker. And you go to see the child magistrate and then that child is placed with you. And we will adopt Nzuzo when we go back again. Nzuzo has been a great joy. But Pam said to me, I asked her later on, I said, well, what was he like when he came to you when he came out of hospital? And she said that child was dead. He was lifeless. Now, if you meet Nzuzo, lifeless and dead are not words that you would use to describe him. He is an immensely sociable little boy. And he... He sits up as we drive in the Blakemobile, which has come to be called by Nzuzo, Daddy Caravan. He sits looking out of the window and goes, cow, sheep, he loves life. 
he has been, for me, he's, it's like he has been brought back from being dead. Again, it's this transformation. It's giving children hope. It's giving children love. It's giving children permanence. It's showing them the love of God. He has been brought back to life as we have been redeemed. As the children of Israel were brought out of slavery. We would like to establish a more of a link to our place of safety with these children who are in hospital, who are abandoned in hospital. Uh, the last time I was in Edendale Hospital, a big township hospital, there were two babies who had been abandoned. And on the end of their cot, it says, No, Mum, please feed me. One child, a little girl of a year, was left in a house. She was found in a house by herself. And a little boy, his mother left him at crash, didn't come back for him. We don't judge, we don't know what desperation, what desperate circumstances people find themselves in. But we do know that as our heart breaks for these children, so our father, his heart also breaks for them. Is this for an emergency baptism, possibly, Steve? Just, just in case, yes. Um, coming here, uh, I had one major worry, and I knew that under the new dispensation here at Fitzroy, you had to have a reference to modern culture, uh, which is maybe not my strong point, as I'm an accountant by nature, but anyway. Um, one Sunday morning, we have this gap to fill before we go out to church, because church doesn't start till 9 o'clock. And Henry was sitting listening to Leonard Cohen. Now, that's possibly not the most appropriate preparation for a church service. So I nearly got the title, first we take Manhattan and then we take Berlin. But he was listening to this song and I actually just realized how it resonated, the title of it resonated with what we were thinking. There ain't no cure for love. And that really is the thing that we have found in all of the circumstances that we are working with children. What the children need is love. And if they don't have love, there's nothing else you can do that replaces it. It doesn't matter whether they're sitting on their own in hospital or we've got them for a month or two in our home or we've taken them on permanently. What these children really need is love. And, you know, it's not surprising, is it? Because that's what we needed, and that's what we need. You see, we hear Paul writing in, in Romans, and he, he's looking for something that's hard to describe. It's something, actually, it's an, an idea that was in the Old Testament, but it wasn't there in all its fullness that he had experienced it. And he, he comes up with some new ideas and some new words, and we have them here in Romans. The first thing is he says the Spirit, God's Spirit with us, doesn't cause us to say the Creed or the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession or any of those things. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things. Paul says the Spirit within us causes us to cry, Abba, Father. And I think that means daddy. In, in Zuzu has an expression at the moment, uh, it's mummy and me. He talks, he's sitting on Sheena's knee and he talks about mummy and me. 
And I think that's a bit like what Abba Father is. There's Sandili who is with us. He used to say with a big sigh, he'd look at me and say, my daddy. And that's what it is. The Spirit teaches us that God is our Father. He loves us. There's a book I read recently uh, about an Islamic woman in Pakistan uh, who becomes a Christian. The title of the book, I think, is I Dared to Call Him Father. It's, it's, it's radical. In fact, it's heresy in some circles to call God Father. But that's actually what God wants us to do. It's not a distant relationship. It's not a cold relationship. It's not a religious relationship. No, it's a family relationship. God wants us to call him Father. And that's where we experience life at its greatest, life at its best, And that's what we are trying to bring to these children in hospital and in our home, is that they would know the love of God, first of all, as they see it in us, as we model it to them, very much a shadow of reality, but we do our best. And also in his word, as we bring the stories of scripture of how God wants to be their father. So that's at the heart of our work is that children would come to know God as their father. Because until they know that love, there's always an aching void. Now, the children that we work with have many aching voids in their lives. They've got health. They've got, or sorry, they don't have health. Health is a void. They don't have education. They don't have a voice very often in their community. They don't have very much. Some of those things can be filled in. And you see that in the Western world. There are people who have no shortage of money. They have no shortage of possessions. They have no shortage of health. And there's still an empty void in their life because they haven't come to know God as their father, the true love. And as Leonard Cohen says, there just ain't no cure for love. If you haven't got it, there's nothing else is going to take its place. You see, our God, our Father, wants us to know him as Father. And then Paul uses another word, and and for some reason the NIV has chosen to change the word. It talks here about the spirit of sonship. Now, I am not a Greek expert, but in the original, the word actually is adoption. That is actually the word. I think it's because in our culture, adoption is seen as something that's second best. And what Paul has in his mind here is not second best, it's the very best. The very best thing that we can boast of is that we have been adopted. That all of us, as you sit here, as I stand here today, the most important thing in our lives is, can you say that you have been adopted? Adopted by God into his family. If you can't say that, then you're missing out on the very best thing that there is to have in life. If you can't cry, Daddy, to God, you're missing out on the very best thing that there is in life. But if we do know that, of being adopted and brought into his family, then we know the greatest blessing that there is. Now, on our work, we have sort of progressed through various things and various aspects. And and something that's really on our heart now is this whole thing of adoption. There are some huge number of children without parents in South Africa. 
Uh, some people say it's two and a half million. I don't know what two and a half million looks like, but it's a very big number anyway. And we have a church there that is strong. It's not everybody that calls itself Christian by a long, long way. But there's a strong church there. And we have got a mandate which says we should be going and caring for those children. We shouldn't just be caring for them and, and leaving them. We should be saying, no, you are a child of God and I want you to be part of my family and I am going to look after you permanently. You can ask the social workers, you can ask the judge in the Peter Maritzburg Children's Court, what do children need? And they say, we, they need permanence. And we as a church need to be offering that to the children around us. Whether it's two or two and a half million, we as the church should be known as the people who look after children. So you see, that's our heart. Our heart is for these children that they would come to know God's love, that they would come to that position of being able to call out Abba Father, to know that comfort, to know the leading, the guidance that we've seen that Jose and his wife have talked about, of knowing God's guidance. That's because God's a father. He doesn't leave us all at sea. He actually guides us. He provides for us. He cares for us. When things go wrong and it's grim, he comforts us. His spirit, Because he's a father. You see, that's what a father does, isn't it? You don't just leave your child when they're distressed, when they've cut their knee. They don't say, oh, it's good for him. He'll learn a lesson there. No, we don't. That's, but God's like that. He looks after us. And that is our heart. But, you know, I don't know, Steve, if you find this problem, but, but sometimes you can approach a passage of Scripture and you've got your sermon and it all works very nicely. And then you actually get to the point of reading the passage. And, and you find it's, it's got angles to it you hadn't thought of. And this passage in Romans, I had picked out this bit about the Abba Father and how well it fits our work. And then I read the whole passage and... and Excuse me if I go on a couple more minutes to point it out to you. It starts off, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Okay? We have an obligation. If you're sitting there and you're part of God's family, you have an obligation, Paul says. It's not an obligation to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Remember the children's talk, it's not what you look like on the outside that matters, it's what you do. You see, being part of God's family, being adopted into God's family, then leads us to an obligation to behave like God's family. What does God do? Well, that's the way we should be doing things. How does he treat other people? That's how we should treat them. We heard it before. How does God treat us? Did God wait till we repented and said sorry and we cleaned up our act a bit and then God said, oh, great, now now you can be saved. No, he didn't. When we were far off, when we were dead, when we were no hope, when we were no use at all, God loved us. And we've heard how we are called to be like that. So if we're in God's family, then we are obliged to behave like our Father does. Father's characteristics. And so my challenge to us in South Africa is, are we being faithful to that? And my challenge to you would be, are you being faithful to that? To that? Is it whether you, how you behave towards your neighbor? Is it how you behave to the person at work that nobody likes for very good reasons? Are you 
behaving like your father or not. And then I'll just touch on it at the end of this passage. It says, and, and here's the good news. If we are children, which we are, then we are heirs. Wonderful. Even better. We're heirs of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. Now, you could put the full stop there and we could sing a hymn and all go home and it would be lovely, wouldn't it? Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And it's important we get to grips with that. We're in the family. One of the big defining issues where we are uh, with adoption is this whole issue of inheritance. If somebody adopts a child, then that child is in line to inherit. So many, many families don't like that. And so they look after a child, but they won't inherit. God has brought us right into his family. We're not hangers on around the outside and they look after us for a bit. No, we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And then the sting in the tail. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that one day we may share in his glory. Now, I will be the first to confess to you, I'm not too sure what share in his sufferings mean. Because as somebody who's grown up in a privileged life, lived an enjoyable life in South Belfast and gone to live in a beautiful country of South Africa, I have to tell you, I don't know a lot about things that you would call suffering. But we have to face it, that God has called us that to the extent he asks us to, we must be prepared to accept those sufferings. I think there are some that we get little inklings of in our normal life. Maybe for most of us here, we don't know about material suffering, which would be very common where we work and with the friends we live with. Maybe we don't. Maybe for some here, they, you do know what material suffering is, not having the things that everybody around you has. Um, maybe some of us know a bit about suffering from our friends because we're going a different path, we're going a different way. Our friends think we're odd. Maybe sometimes our friends think they're, they're hostile to us because we're going a different way. The challenge would be, are we prepared to go where God wants us to go, do the things he wants us to do, whether they're sufferings or not? And indeed, might I just suggest if your life is all going totally smoothly, are you sure you're where you ought to be? Um, it's a sort of funny thing to say, isn't it? Are you sure you're where you ought to be? Are you just no different from the other person at school or the other person at work? Are you just so pleasant that nobody ever has a word to say that stings you? Um, are you enjoying yourself so much um, that there's no material blessing to anybody else? I don't know. I just leave that with you. So at the heart of our work and at the heart of the gospel, there is this father who is desperate that people will know him as their loving heavenly father and will call him daddy, will know what it is to be brought right into his family, to be adopted, to be heirs with Christ Jesus. Yes, but then people who will show the family image that people will be able to recognize you. Yeah, he's one of them because look how he behaves. They may not understand why you do it, but they can see you're different. And maybe 
God will call us to something that is not we wouldn't choose. The only thing I'll tell you is he'll give you the strength to get through whatever it is. And based on my very, very little bit of suffering, I'll say, actually, you look back on it and you think, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. So let us examine our own lives. And and a final word, thank you for your support and your help as individuals and as a church to us as we try and take the message of God's love to people in another part of the world. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we thank you that we can come to you with those very words, our Father. Me and God, me and my Father. And thank you that we can be accepted even though we are not worthy, that we can't earn our position, but we thank you that we can come into that family. Father, we pray that in what we do, we would be working out our obligation to be like you in the world. How we behave, what we say, how we treat other people. That we would put to death the things in our life that conform to the world around us and rather live like you. And we pray too that you would not lead us into suffering. But Father, we ask that you would help us to be faithful that where you want us to suffer, where you give us the privilege, the calling to suffer, we would be prepared to go and that we would rejoice in knowing your comfort and your strength in those situations. So Father, we ask that you would go with us. Look after us in whatever corner of your world we are working in and help us to be faithful children just like our heavenly daddy and that we might bring glory to your name that jesus might be lifted up in our community because of who we are and what we do amen